This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. In this episode, we have the guys from Downshift Financial back on the show. You might remember they were on way back in episode 24. They're a financial planning firm that specializes in serving young families on the path to financial independence and early retirement. They're fee-only and they detest commissions and they only charge a flat rate regardless of your income or assets, which is a sharp contrast to some of the other financial advisors you might find out there. Today, the topic is dealing with the turbulent market. So no matter when you're listening or watching this, there could be a sort of downturn in the market. We recorded this in February of 2022, and there was a little bit of a dip, but we also talk about when the market's up, and sometimes the market's up, sometimes it's down, and we talk about staying cool and not making any crazy decisions. So let's get to the episode now, and you know what? Before we go to the episode, if you're not signed up for the email list, you can follow the link wherever you are checking out this episode. It's in the show notes somewhere. You can sign up for the email list. We just let you know when new shows come out and occasionally we'll send you another email if something uh, you know kind of interesting is going on. And without further ado, let's hear from Travis and Eddie. Welcome to the Mile High Fi Podcast. I am Carl Jensen with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. And we have two very special returning guests today. Tell us your names and what you do. I am Eddie Liang, and I am a financial planner at Downshift Financial. I'm Travis Hughes, and I'm his assistant. <laughs> is, is that true? Are you really his assistants? I always no, thought we're, you were equals. Yeah, we're, we're, co- we're co-partners. And the pretty face. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> who goes and gets the coffee when you're in the office? Are you... We both work from home, so... Okay. <laughs> you both do. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> Chief cook, head bottle washer situation over here. Okay. So, Eddie, we talked a little bit before, and you had a good story about a stock purchase. These were actually stocks that your father had gifted you that may not have turned out so well. Can you tell us that story? Sure. Yeah. My dad has been and still is an individual stock picker, much to my chagrin. Um, But he had bought some shares of uh, a 3D printing company um, decades ago. And um, when he felt that I was responsible enough, he, uh, he gifted them to me. He turned them over to my hands and I just didn't do anything with them, which is probably the, well, I don't know if it's the right thing to do, but it did. Um, it was a 10 bagger. So it went from like 10 bucks a share to a hundred bucks a share. And that became like really meaningful money to me. And, you know, this was, you know, just over five years ago and I could have used that money and done something good with it. I could have sold it, you know, and paid off the house or, or done something productive with it. But I hung on to it thinking that it would go even higher. And unfortunately, you know, it was a fad. And it fell tremendously and, and I didn't take any action. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's one regret that I have is that I didn't do anything with it, knowing that very well as an index fund investor that I should have sold it and rolled it in index funds or done something better with it. But I didn't, um, yeah, greed kind of took hold. Yeah. But, but sometimes you have to go through those lessons to know what to do in the future and to do the better thing. I, I was just telling Doug, I stopped contributing to my 
401k when the Great Recession happened, the exact opposite thing I should have done. I had a stable job. I could have very well continued to max it out, and I, and I did not. I have a follow-up question for you. Your dad is a stock picker, and you're a big index fund guy. Do you guys, do you all fight at Thanksgiving over that? Like, ah, your dad's like, ah, you should be buying Tesla, and you're like, no, VTSAX. You know, he thinks he's smarter than the average baron, and he might well be. I know that I'm not. And I know that index investing in boring passive index funds is a winning strategy over the long term. I mean, the problem is you can be a very smart person. You can be smarter than 90% of the people on the planet, but you're not smarter than the stock market. So like his portfolio, for example, is a lot of like industrials, a lot of like deep value type plays. And unfortunately, he didn't have much exposure to tech. And tech has carried the market for a long time. And he's missed out on that. So I'm like, Dad, you could have just bought an index fund and you would have done so much better than your existing portfolio. You'd be so far ahead. Whoa, no Apple, no Alphabet. IBM. (laughs) I need to take a moment here to regroup. That's that's actually a very common bias with investing, particularly people that are stock pickers, is picking things that you you know about. So uh, the Visual Visual Capitalist, I think is the name of the website, has, has a post about this where they show that Folks in the South tend to invest more in oil and gas than folks in the North. Folks in, in the West, like in California, tend to invest more in tech. It's just because you're you're near it is all it is. It doesn't mean you have more knowledge than, you know, you don't have insider information or anything. You're not going to beat the market with it. You just, you know, you invest in what you know. Yeah. Wow. I There was a, there was a podcast we've talked about before called Animal Spirits. And on a recent episode, they talked about how, I think the top five biggest holdings in techs have accounted for like most of the gains in an index fund. And some people will see that as a reason to poo-poo an index fund. They'll say, well, what if I, I should just own those five? But the thing is, finding out which five are going to actually do that is the really difficult problem. And if you can actually do that, call me because I, I want to talk. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> some would say that owning 20 to 30 stocks is diversified, but if you don't get any of those names in your basket, you're not. I mean, you're lagging. So this was an extremely long opening. We're going to transition into the topic that Eddie and Travis came here to talk about today. And these are downturns and how you should act and their thoughts on downturns. The market has been real volatile in the past few months. We've had as of this recording, perhaps a possible European war. We've had inflation. We've had a big pullback in growth stocks. Um, can you hit on some of the highlights of what's been going on recently? Yeah, sure. I mean, we've, I mean, previous to this, we've experienced a tremendous bull market. You know, we've had what six strong years of positive. Well, one one year of negative returns. But aside from that, many positive and very positive. Returns essentially ten straight years of positive returns. That's not normal. Yeah. So hopefully, yeah, we've all benefited from it as long as we've been invested. Hopefully, your listeners have been as well. Um, but you know, there is downside volatility too, um, and um, you know, it's just hard to feel it because we've experienced this long extended bull market for a while. But I mean, just from our fifty-two week highs, like VT Sachs has pulled back about nine percent. Um. And, but, you know, that's not representative of like what people are really experiencing individually. Like there are like tech names that have been hurt. Like the QQQ NASDAQ is down 15% from its 52 week highs. Small caps are down, what, 18%. 
You know, you've got companies like Tesla and NVIDIA, you know, tech names that are down 30%, work from home like Peloton and Zoom down 70 to 80% from their 52-week highs. So pretty insane. And Carl, you have a lot of Tesla. How bad did that hurt you? I do. I think it hit a all-time high in November of about 1200 and now it's down under 900 So it about $350,000 just with Tesla. And I think I'm down... I was down almost a million dollars off my all-time high, but I don't care. I think uh, Travis said something that was very important. He said, we've had 10 really good years. So, man, if you got, if this is all I have to experience to pay back those 10 good years, like, it's been great. And I think this goes back to the long-term thinking and the temperament of investors. You have to, there's always going to be downturns, but over time it's going to be up and you have to consider I don't, I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about this, but if someone came to me freaking out, I'd be like, you just had a great decade, probably one of the best bull markets in history, right? If you got to have a little 25% downturn or even a 50% haircut, you're still way up if you've been investing the whole time. Yep. And some people panic and they want to pull the money out, which is bad, of course, since we, we all should know to buy low and sell high. Like we should, we should know that, but it gets emotional. So do you guys have tips on how to stay the course and not freak out? Carl seems pretty calm. He just said he lost a million bucks on paper. That sounds bad, but you seem okay. So yeah, any tips? Yeah. I mean, you know, letting emotions drive, uh, actions, especially rash actions in a time like this is, is going to cause massive issues down the road. Um, I think, there's a lot of, you know, psychology and just human nature in it. Um, when you see the market crashing, you see your investments going down, the reaction, just natural human reaction is to, to do something, like do something about it, you know? Um, and that generally is not the best, the best answer. Uh, so it's kind of hard to, to fight that off. I think in, in your Tesla case, Carl, um, the way I would think about it is how many shares do you own? And did that change? Um, no, the share count, I think I own 1200 shares and not, nothing. So changed. you still own the same amount of a company, right? You haven't lost anything unless you sell technically. Now that's not necessarily to say that you shouldn't sell and capture some tax losses and, you know, different portfolio th theory, things like that. But, um, you know, when I look at it, especially like with index funds, that's what I think of is I own a little slice of the economy. I own a slice of every publicly traded company in the country and most of them around the world. And the value that somebody else is willing to, the dollar amount somebody else is willing to pay me for that today is different than yesterday, but it doesn't change the amount of, of those companies that I own, right? So. Yeah, to build on that just for a second, the thing I think about withholding an individual stock is nothing happened with a company. I care way more about what the company is doing than the, the stock. The stock is a sort of reflection, the stock price is, a reflection of the company, but it can be loose. Uh, Tesla went down not because of anything that went wrong with it, but because of macroeconomic factors. Uh, tell me if I'm saying the wrong thing because there was a move out of growth stocks. Yeah, certainly possible. Um, so, I mean, you know, fighting off these bad behavioral urges can, can go a long way. I mean, uh, you know, you're going to do a lot more damage by making mistakes like selling, selling at lows and just making rash decisions, then you can by picking 20 or 30 stocks instead of indexing, right? Like it's not optimal, we think, but it still is generally going to be like, okay, as long as you're not making these huge mistakes. 
Um, so some of the things that that we like to put in place, um, first and foremost, is having a written plan. I'm guessing like your your 3D printing stock, Eddie. Did you write down a plan in advance for when you would sell it? So I did not have a plan at that time. Yep. So that's the thing. If you write down a plan in, in our industry, this is called an investment policy statement. But if for yourself, I mean, just just jot it down real quick. So in Eddie's 3D printing stock example, it would be like, you know, hey, if this stock went up to $100 a share, that is more than enough for me, I'd sell it at that price. And if you write it down, and then when he goes back and looks at it, I mean, you made that decision at a calm time, right? When you could analyze everything, not when bullets are flying, not when you're in the middle of battle, right? Like you have that plan in advance and you stick to it. Um, so, you know, making decisions about when to sell before that moment comes can be beneficial. Yeah, creating these rules and having them written down so that you can reflect on them during times of crisis. I so mean, we're literally talking like print it out and sign it in ink so that you can reference it when you're trading. You should make them sign it in blood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, obviously the good old like don't peak is a big one, right? Most people are probably familiar with it. Um, if you're accumulating money still, if you're if you're adding to your investment portfolio, keep putting money in there and just don't peak, you know? Take a look 20 years later and you'll be surprised at, at, at what you've done in the meantime. Um, automating is good. I mean, putting money into a 401k, if you're, if you're an employee and you're contributing to a 401k, that's kind of a set it and forget it strategy. Um, and particularly in a down market, it's, you're essentially dollar cost averaging, right? Cause you're putting, you know, X percent of your paycheck in and your paycheck is the same unless you have bonuses and commissions and whatnot. Um, and when the market falls, you end up buying more shares in general than when it's going up. So dollar cost averaging can be beneficial. Um, and then I don't know if you want to go. I into... was just actually thinking about Carl's situation with his Tesla position. And I mean, I believe from what you've shared online is that you're in a position where you're not relying on Tesla to be your, like your ticket to retirement because you're already there. So if it were, God forbid, it were to go down to zero, I don't think it would affect your plans very much. Yeah, that, that's right. The other thing too is I'm anchored at my purchase price, which was pretty low. It was like five bucks. So it doesn't really, I, I, I would be unhappy if I went to zero, but it wouldn't affect my plan. But in general, I think uh, Tesla was uh, very lucky for me in general. I, I don't buy individual stocks anymore. I would never, I don't think stocks are the right answer for the overwhelming majority of people. And do you have a plan written down? I was just about to ask that. Um, for Tesla or just in general? It sounds like no to both of those. <laughs> <laughs> the, the answer is no to both of those, actually. I, I have it in my head, but I don't have anything written down. So what's, right. what's your plan? Just out of curiosity, what's your plan with this Tesla stock specifically? Um, you're probably not going to like my answer, but it's pretty dynamic. I, I'm obsessed with technology. You talked about biases and my bias is tech and I like cars a lot and EVs. I, I do think that's the future. So I follow the space. And as of now, Tesla has a, a massive lead that's probably getting bigger. A lot of their production technologies, their battery production technologies, uh, are years ahead. It's going to take other car companies many years. Uh, the other thing is there's all these, aside from the tech part, when you have an electric car, it requires no maintenance. Most dealerships make their money on maintaining a car. What happens when you have to sell a car that doesn't need much maintenance? So the whole, and that's why Tesla doesn't have dealerships. So 
there's a lot of things going against traditional car companies. And I think a couple of them will be bankrupt before the end of the decade. So the answer to your question is I follow what Tesla does. And if I ever think that they have lost their competitive edge, I would probably consider selling the shares at that time. But right now, I guess, and when I buy a stock, the only, when I did buy them, it would be a stock that I would want to hold forever, which is very hard and kind of stupid thinking on it. Uh, because no moats, Warren Buffett has some famous thing like, if you have a, a big moat, you better have a good night to guard it because everyone's going to come for your castle. And, and that's true. But yeah, I don't buy stocks that I think I'll have to consider selling within the next 10 years, I'll say. So when I thought about Tesla, I think the earliest I would consider selling it is 20, 30. Maybe I'd sell a couple shares to buy a Tesla, but yeah, no problem. I mean, there's there's a few option strategies you could employ that would at least help you prevent you from losing so much money. Um, yeah, uh, put, correct. So, Do you want to go to the, into those or do you want me to? Go for it. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like, what, can I ask how many shares you own? Um, it's about 1,200. Okay, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I would start with covered calls and protective puts. So, um, you know, a, a call option essentially is you're purchasing the right, or the buyer of a call option is purchasing the right to buy a stock at a specific price before the deadline, right? Before the expiration date. So you could sell calls. Other people would be buying the right to buy your stock from you at a specific price. You would sell it at a price above the market. So if you did this before the crash, you said it was about 1200 bucks before it went down. Maybe you sold calls at $1,500 or something, right? That would generate a little bit more income off of the stock. Um, and then it, that also goes into the whole, like, when would you sell thing? You're kind of locking in that sale price, right? So instead of just writing it on a piece of paper and committing to it, where you can break your own promise later, you basically can't break that promise, yeah. right? Um, and then protective puts, obviously, uh, the put is kind of the opposite of that. So it, if you buy a put, then you have the right to sell your to sell stock to someone else at a specific price later. So if you bought a put below the market, if you, again, if the stock was at 1200 and you bought puts at, say, $1,000, and the stock went below that to 900 I think you said, then you could sell your stock for $1,000 a share um, to the other person on that contract. And if you actually put those two together, you can create what's called a collar, which essentially limits the the outside volatility of the stock. So to the, you'd be limited to the upside and the downside, but it reduces the volatility. Huh, interesting. Okay. I think you just got a free session. I know, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> or you could just take some chips off the table and sell. Yeah, that would probably be a better <laughs> idea. But I mean, these are pretty advanced strategies. And again, we don't like dabbling in in specific stocks. We have clients that have them. A lot of folks have, you know, stock compensation and stuff like that. So you have to deal with stuff like this, even if you're not out buying stock outright. So yeah, yeah. with all this said, VTSAX is my biggest holding. I'm about to sell a couple of syndication deals and all the money's going to go into there. So I hope my, well, if I'm lucky, my individual shares will continue to do well and take up half of my portfolio. But if not, VTSAX will just take over and it'll be self-cleansing. But yeah, so Doug, you wrote this next question and it's about portfolio theory, which I don't even know what that is. So I'm going to learn something here. So let's talk about portfolio theory and how risk and return play into that. Uh, yeah, so portfolio theory, you know, folks, everyone wants to think about the return of an investment. Um, modern portfolio theory takes into account uh, the risk and correlation of your investments as well. 
So this is a bit more advanced way to, to think about your investments. You've also got what's called post-modern portfolio theory, which is essentially cuts out the upside risk, if you will, the upside volatility, because, hey, upside volatility is great, right? <laughs> um, so I, I guess first talking about risk, um, in this in this context, what we're talking about is, again, volatility, which is the, the deviation of returns uh, around the mean, around the average. So if you think about the stock market delivering, say, a 10% return on average in the long term, obviously, it's not doing that every single year, right? Some years you've got plus 40, some years you've got minus 40, just kind of averages out in the middle. So the risk is the, de the deviation from that mean, right? Um, so for example, Doug and Carl, would y'all rather own an investment that delivers exactly 10% return every single year or one that delivers 10% on average in the long term, but sometimes you get negative 50 years, sometimes you get positive 50 years, get everything in between. What would you rather have? I mean, I think if I'm thinking rationally, it doesn't matter. Either one's fine. But from a stability and sanity standpoint, 10% every year seems pretty good. What about you? Yeah, maybe you're talking about the arithmetic versus geometric returns where if something goes down 50%, if it goes back up 50%, you're at a lesser level because now it's got to go up more to compensate because yeah. you're, you're working with less money and maybe that's what you're getting at and trying to trick us. I don't know. Uh, no, but, it's not, not a trick question. That's okay. that's Math is weird, by the way. Yeah, if it drops 50, you got to go up 100 to get back to break yeah. even, right? Yeah, so I would say the same thing as Doug, the straight 10%, unless I could dictate where those drops happen because if all that increases happened up front, you'd be better off than if the decreases happened up front, the whole sequence of returns. Yeah. What is I the mean, right answer? To, to, to clarify, there is no investment that guarantees exactly 10% return per year, right? <laughs> I-bonds are getting close at the moment, but even that will fluctuate. Um, but basically what you guys both just got at kind of intuitively is what's called risk-adjusted return. So it's how much return do you get per unit of risk, right? So there are ratios like the Sharpe ratio and Sortino ratio that you can quantify this with, but um, you know that's that's the first component of modern portfolio theory is risk-adjusted returns. You're not just looking at the return, you're looking at the return per unit of risk. And then the second is going to be correlation of your of your investments. Um, so obviously, if you have, well, I guess first let's talk about what correlation is. So if you uh, imagine like a DNA double helix, lay it flat. And then you've got kind of two waves that are moving in the opposite direction of each other. Exactly. That's a perfectly positive or perfectly negative correlation. They move in the opposite direction by the same amount, right? Same time, same amount. Um, so if you take that, you know, imagine that double helix and then invert it, tilt the right side up, kind of like a stock graph. Now imagine if you had two investments that would go up and to the right, but when one went down, the other one went up all of the time. That'd be pretty ideal, wouldn't it? You're, you're, in that case, your portfolio would be perfectly linear. And again, that doesn't exactly exist in the real world, but that's one of the ideas between reducing with reducing correlation um, in your portfolio. So, you know, if you had, for example, um, an S&P 500 index fund and a total US stock index fund, like VTSAX, VTI, those are going to be very highly correlated. It's almost one-to-one -one correlation. I mean, you know, S&P 500 is the majority of, of what's in yeah, it's like 80% total, of total stock market. Sacks. Yeah. But treasuries, US treasuries, short, mid and long term, generally about a negative 0.3% correlation. And correlation goes from negative one to positive one. So, so what happens is generally when the stock market goes down, treasuries are going to go up. So by blending some of those in there, 
when the market goes down, you're going to sell some of the treasuries that went up and then buy the market at a lower price. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. I like that you assume that we know what the double helix looks like. <laughs> um, I think Carl probably does with the biology background, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I do I mean, know what that is. I think I've seen pictures, so I, I get you. I get, I get what you're saying. All right, I'm going to throw this one over to Eddie. One major issue with volatility is sequence of returns, which we just mentioned. And, you know, for example, my father-in-law retired around 2007, and then the financial crisis hit. And I know they had to think a little bit harder about what they were spending right when he retired. Um, I assume I didn't have conversations, but I assume their portfolio took a pretty big hit. So how should we think about the sequence of returns, especially considering potential volatility? Yeah, so it depends where you are in your life stage. So, you know, you want, you don't want to be withdrawing from a portfolio during down markets because that gives you less ammunition to, to reap gains when things bounce back. So as you're approaching retirement or leaving that full-time job, it makes sense to kind of Park some, park some of your money in more stable assets, like in cash, short-term bonds, I-bonds, <laughs> things of that nature um, to kind of help you weather this um, potential negative sequence of returns. Like for my own personal situation, as I continued working and thinking about, oh, like I, I want to leave, but I'm not sure what I want to do next, but I know I don't want to head back to work anytime soon. <laughs> Um, I didn't keep that money in VT Sachs and potentially experience like it getting chopped in half. Like I didn't want to have to return to work sooner than I had planned. So I stashed, you know, several years of cash to buy me time. So I had that runway to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And, and I highly recommend, and we highly recommend that to, to the folks that we work with, you know, as they consider what they want to do next to have that cash, to buy them options, not call or put options, but to buy that optionality, to have that flexibility to not have to return to work sooner than they expected if things were to really hit the fan. And on the other side of that, if the market's up and someone retires, can you be a little bit more sloppy and make poorer decisions? That That's more my style generally, to not have to watch as close. So if the market's up, can you just be a little sloppy? I would not do that. No, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be sloppy going. So the, the five years, I like to think of the five years before and after retirement, or more specifically before and after withdrawing money from your portfolio, right? As like the red zone, those are critical years in terms of what happens in the market and how much you're withdrawing. Um, I mean, Karsten over at earlyretirementnow.com just wrote a post recently. Um, I think it was the one, the post about the, the top 10 things the, the fire movement doesn't want you to know or something like that. Um, but he, he harps on it a lot about how CAPE ratio affects withdrawal rates. And of, of course, folks probably know CAPE ratio is a measurement of, of uh, the price, essentially, of the market. And it's very elevated right now relative to historical norms. And it's a very dangerous place to be if you're going into retirement. So if you were to retire today at a very high CAPE ratio, your withdrawal rate should be lower than if the CAPE ratio were low. I mean, if the CAPE ratio was 10 
you could have a higher withdrawal rate because you're likely to have better returns moving forward. But with CAPE ratios over 30, you need to have a lower withdrawal rate. When can we be sloppy? Is that a, is there a time for that? I wouldn't recommend being <laughs> sloppy with money ever. <laughs> you can be a little bit sloppier once you're out of that retirement red zone. Is your, is your middle name Joe by any chance? Sloppy Joe? <laughs> no, no. no that's a, I was going to say I did a, a smart thing where I married a uh, spouse that is not sloppy. And uh, she watches over me like a hawk. She's probably listening right now. 10 of 10. Highly recommend. <laughs> I, I sense a new nickname coming on for you, Doug. We coined Backdoor Doug a couple podcasts ago on Sloppy Doug, Disheveled Doug. I don't know. Maybe. It's something like that. I feel like we should do like custom t-shirts for each one of these things, like a limited <laughs> run. There's only 10 of them. Super uh, special, you know. Or, oh, we could do an NFT. Oh, uh, oh yeah. there you go. I'm not even sure what that is, but I hear people talking about it. We'll, uh, we'll do a yeah. Backdoor Doug. I think your net worth went up just by saying it. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty... Isn't that how it works? <laughs> we we should take it offline. We'll, we'll do like physical NFT T-shirts. Is that a thing? I don't. I don't think. Couldn't the, tell blockchain you. Blockchain can't do that. I don't think. You just invented it. We'll have a code in the T-shirt, like a, one of those thirty-character-long things. Awesome. I I, yeah, but, I think we're just talking about selling T-shirts, but but okay. But yes, I think it's okay for you to get a little bit sloppy. But um, like we talked um, the last time around, like also be flexible. So. If things were to correct, you know, tighten it up a little bit. Got it. I mean, I think the other thing with sequenced risk um, to, to keep in mind, and just for anybody that may not know what sequenced risk is, what we're talking about here is, you know, if you're withdrawing money, the value of your investments going down in the early years of retirement, that's sequenced risk. So you can think about it as a two-sided coin. If you're putting money into the portfolio, you're actually on the good side of sequenced risk, right? So... If, if your strongest earning years happen to be, for example, 2001 to 2010, it was essentially a lost decade in the stock market, went nowhere, right? It crashed, recovered, crashed again. But if those are the strongest earning years and you're putting money in the whole time, you're putting money in at lower, you know, lower prices, lower valuations, essentially. And then you start to prep for retirement and everything starts going up and up and up. So if you're putting money in, seeing volatility and, and the market's going down, uh, obviously, you don't want that long term, but it's not necessarily a bad thing because you're putting money in today, you're buying at a lower price. That is exactly when I started investing and it felt bad and I didn't realize like, oh, I should like probably max out my 401k as much as possible. And I only did a couple of years. Yeah. So. It just feels so counterintuitive. Yeah. Right? When mm -hmm. things are, things look so dire, that's the best time to continue investing. Yeah. So Doug, I think you two might be the us two might be the poster children for this next question because you just talked about your sloppiness. And before we started recording, uh, Travis talked about how it's a bad idea to have a mortgage in retirement. And when COVID hit, I did a cash out refinance. We, had, we actually had our house paid off. We took out a mortgage and I invested all the money. So we're doing two things that Eddie and Travis have said are potentially bad things. So the question is, can you talk about investment strategies and some mistakes people make and things that our listeners should look out for. I mean, so first of all, I guess I would clarify with the mortgage. Um, there, there's a difference between, you know, the spreadsheet answer and what is best for you personally. I think that home ownership in general, with or without a mortgage, is good in retirement because it's a hedge against inflation. If you're renting, the rent is just going to continue to go up, period. It's just going to keep going up. If you own, 
the mortgage is going to be locked in, or if it's free and clear, there's no mortgage. And then you only have to worry about the property taxes and insurance going up, maybe HOA fees. And maintenance. Yeah, maintenance. Yeah. Utilities and everything, but you're not going to eliminate, you know, utilities and all that. Um, anyway, so, so if the mortgage interest rate is below like 5%, then on a spreadsheet, the answer is basically to just always have a mortgage, but that's not, you know, we don't live in a spreadsheet, right? It needs to be something that you're comfortable with. can help you sleep at night. So, you know, just to clarify there, we're not saying that everyone should have a paid off house necessarily, but we do think homeownership is generally a good idea. Yeah. Like for me personally, like as I was approaching FI and FIRE, um, I really wanted to pay off my mortgage just because it would help me sleep better at night knowing that I didn't have this this debt overhanging. Cool. And, and if I had money invested and it, you know, and it dropped in half, like I wouldn't be freaking out as much because I didn't have those larger mortgage payments to make. Yep. And we we have a mortgage here. But I have thought about like, what if I sold a portion of my business, for example, and then I could just pay it off. And that, like you said, it, it's just a little bit less stress and I can, well, by selling a business, I get rid of work that I'm actively doing and just less stress overall. So, I mean, you can't, like you said, we don't live in a spreadsheet, so you got to make And it. it's not an all or nothing type decision either. Like you could just, you know, maybe make a higher payment to your to your mortgage every month to just pay down, continually pay down more principal. Yeah, you can fast pay it. One thing that we like to do with folks that that like the idea of fast paying is to actually just set up a separate investment account, a bro taxable brokerage, just plain old brokerage account. And say you wanted to put in 200 or $400 a month to fast pay your mortgage. Instead of fast paying it, put it in that brokerage account and invest it. And then at some point, the balance of that brokerage account will be higher than the balance of your mortgage. And then you have that good old optionality we were talking about, cash it out and pay, out your, pay off your mortgage or let it ride, do whatever you want. But you still have that money in hand, right? You can still do things with it. Whereas if you pay it into your mortgage, it's it's locked up. Sure. One side question or one thing. I was listening to the Animal Spirits podcast, which we talked about before, and they were saying if we had a 0% mortgage, I think Michael Batnick said, I would not take it because I'd be too tempted to spend the money that I'm not putting into the mortgage. Um, I find that weird. This is that's why personal finance is personal. Like I would take zero percent money any day, any day of the week. I took two point seven percent money. But aside mortgages and sloppy dog, uh, what other mistakes do you see people making? And maybe potentially focus on the financial independence community because I know that's what y'all focus on with your practice. I mean, I think we covered a lot of the mistakes um, with the behavioral stuff. I mean, selling you know after the market crashes, selling is a bad idea. Um, I don't know if we want to maybe talk about some of the upside opportunities sure. for that sort of stuff. Yeah. I guess one follow-up question before that is the financial independence community is interesting because they haven't been around that long. We talked a little bit before. A lot of these people have never seen a downturn. On the other side of that, I see people on Twitter say, oh, I can't wait till the market drops. That's an opportunity for me to buy at a lower price. And who knows if they'll actually follow through with that when it happens. But it seems like at least some people have been trained on how to react when the big downturn happens, maybe more so than the general population. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is why we recommend thinking about having an asset allocation like planned in advance so that you have rules in place. So, you know, I'm going to continue investing every month, twice a month, you know, whenever you get your paycheck. 
And instead of waiting for that time that may or may not arrive to jump in. So just methodically dollar cost average into the markets and have that plan in place. So when things hit the fan, you rebalance, you know, you sell the bonds or whatever that have held up or maybe grown because of that negative correlation to buy stocks at depressed levels. And I think that actually leads us to the next question. So maybe maybe you could just confirm that you just stated it, but basically during the corrections, is there anything smart and beneficial that we should do? And rebalancing sounds like the smart thing to do, right? Yeah, that's a big one. So, okay. um, so, so the key there is, you know, this is one thing, and this is an opportunity you don't have if you're, if you're just a hundred percent VT Sachs investor, right? There's just nothing you can do. <laughs> you just have what you have and it is what it is. Um, so if you, if you set an asset allocation up front, we typically use around five index funds. I mean, they're all low fee index funds and everything. Uh, instead of using a total market, we use large, small, and mid cap domestic. And then we have an international, we use a treasury index fund as well. Um, and then you set what's called a rebalance band parameter on it. So, you know, typically we look around 5%. So if you had, let's say a 90, 10 portfolio, 10% of your portfolio is in US treasuries. And if it, that 10% goes to 15 or reduces to five, or on the other side, if your 90% stocks goes up to 95 or down to, to 85, then you rebalance to get back to your 90, 90, 10 allocation. And the, the nature of doing that is that whichever one went up, you're selling at the higher price and the other one had gone down or hasn't moved or whatever. And you're buying at that lower price. So bands are a nice way to have like, you know, a number, a numerical rule in place. Or you can do something like, oh, you know, we just had a really bad day in the market. Let's rebalance today. You know, so you could do ad hoc like rebalancing too. Okay. And I like that you have a little uh, tolerance. So 5%, you don't have to watch it super close. And you're like, oh, I'm up like half a percent. I need to rebalance. There's some uh, flexibility with it. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we have software that we use for the families that we serve and stuff. But for a regular investor, a DIY investor... If you wanted to take this to, to the most extreme, I would set just alerts. So at, at the day you set your portfolio, if you know the index fund for the treasuries is trading at $10 and you have a 5% band, increase it by 5% and set a price alert, decrease by 5% set a price alert, and then just don't peak. And then when you get that text message from Fidelity or Vanguard or whoever, then you know to go rebalance. Or another way is just saying, oh, I'm just gonna rebalance uh, every year, like on my birthday, you know, to make it simple. Yep. Nice. Cool. And then anything else to think about during corrections? Is that only the only thing? Uh, you can use it as an opportunity to do what we call tax loss harvesting. So if you have any uh, positions that are at a loss, you could sell that and capture that loss to kind of offset like maybe some income or gains in other positions that you might have, or you can carry it forward to use in future years. So for example, you could like sell like VTR, VT Sachs at a loss and buy something that's similar-ish um, to it and and keep that loss, but you still have that same exposure. And does that loss offset short-term gains, long-term gains, or does it offset whichever one the loss happens to be? How does that work? So the capital gains net out together first. So you, you would net long-term gains against each other and short-term gains against each other. And then you would net them together. And if you still have a net loss, you can offset, I think $3,000 a year in income, earned income today. 
Okay. So that's really re- valuable for um, high income earners. Like if to be able to offset, you know, 3000, reduce their income that year by $3,000. And as you implied, if you do more than 3000, it carries over to future years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And for those, um, those of your listeners who have like equity compensation or have high concentrations in stock that they want to unwind, you could use that tax loss to, you know, start unwinding um, their concentrated position in an efficient manner. Okay. okay. Let's talk about the opposite. And I'm thinking of one strategy. I want to see if you guys hit on it before I say what it is, but are there any opportunities that people should take advantage of when markets are high? And I have one in my mind. I'm curious to see if you all mention it. Oh, take advantage of when the market is high. Interesting. What? I mean, I would just continue to invest the same way, you know. Now you had mentioned zero income. Yes. So, so you could, um, you know, you could sell positions. You can, it's kind of like the, it's the opposite of tax loss harvesting. Um, it's kind of taking advantage of you being in a low tax bracket and probably in a low enough tax bracket where you don't even have to pay federal uh, or capital gains taxes at the federal level. Um, mm-hmm. So you could um, generate, you could just sell some shares at higher prices and not pay federal taxes on it and rebuy it. So basically you're stepping up your basis at a very, very minimal cost. We have to be careful of wash sales, but yeah. I mean, you well, could go if even it's higher. Gained, you're okay, right? Yeah, you, you could go even higher. I mean, if with zero income, right now the capital gains rate is so low. I mean, I, I would max out the, if you had if you had gains to harvest, I would max it out up into the 15% bracket. Yeah, I think, what do capital gains start at like 83,000 or something like that for a married couple, I think? Yeah, it sound, sounds about right. And I, I think know. that might change in 2025 or something like that. But the, yeah, I and, think the 15% bracket is fairly generous though yeah. as well. Okay. Yeah, it is. And, and that's, you know, that's the current tax law. Like Ch- changes every couple of like years. Tax right? rates are so low right now that it might make sense to pay that fifteen percent rate. Ooh, so you hinted at something that that was supposed to be our last question, but um, can you comment on that? Because I've thought the same thing. Tax rates are low now, but I anticipate them going up in the future. So maybe I should start moving my four hundred one k, like do the conversion or whatever, to a Roth. Do, does that ever come up in your practice, and how do you think about that situation? Oh, absolutely. So the folks that we work with, you know, they they want to retire earlier than the their traditional person does. So there's going to be this period where there's no income. So we we use that as an opportunity to recommend conversions from traditional to Roth um, to pay taxes at a lower rate now, or not now, but you know, sometime in the near future. Versus having to pay a much higher tax rate later on, especially when RMDs, required minimum distributions, um, start. So you're essentially locking in your tax rate today and rolling the dice that the rate you would have had to have paid later is higher. Um, If the market crashes, that's a great opportunity for Roth conversions. I did this in, in the COVID crash in March of 2020, which is unbelievably three years ago, two years ago now. You know, the market crashed and then I converted it. So, so the balance of my Roth IRA went down by 30% plus. Um, and then when I converted, the, the conversion amount is taxable. So my taxable income on that conversion was lower than if I had converted prior to the market crash. So that's a good opportunity as well. Yeah. So we have, a, so we have our financial planning software and also tax planning software where we can kind of model out, you know, how much you could save by converting up to like that 15% bracket. 
or whatever. Yeah. We can we can play with different brackets to show how things look. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you said that because I think the exact same way as you. I, I, one interesting statistic I read, you, you might be able to speak to this more intelligently, was that there's like 21 trillion in 401ks or something like that. And there's like 1 trillion in Roth investments. So it's much higher. So if the government wants to pick some low-hanging fruit, raise income taxes, because when you withdraw that money from your 401k, you're going to be hit with taxes. So whereas a Roth, they can't do anything about. Unless, yeah. the, unless the law changes, which some folks think is possible, but I don't worry about it too much with Roth IRAs. But I mean, another thing to keep in mind, especially for folks that are socking away massive amounts of money, maxing out 401ks and things is, you know, if if the majority of your investable assets is in pre-tax money, you're going to have problems with required minimum distributions later. They're good problems. Yeah, but it's a problem, <laughs> quote, unquote. But yeah, I mean, and there's just no flexibility. You harp on flex flexibility right? a lot, right, Carl? Yes. There's just no flexibility there. And if all your money's there and you start having to withdraw, I mean, in, let's say in today's dollars, you had to start withdrawing a quarter million dollars a year from your 401k or, or traditional IRA, you're paying tax rates on that. You're, you're paying applicable tax rates on that. There's just no flexibility. So if you, you know, we like to see folks having a, a blend of of uh, pre-tax, like traditional IRA and 401k, Roth and after-tax accounts. Um, that way you have that flexibility later. You're taking your RMDs, but you want your RMD to be lower than what you want to spend in the year. That way you can choose whether you want to withdraw the rest from your Roth IRA. We draw down taxable accounts first um, or pull more, more from your traditional IRA or what. What kind of ratio do you like to see between those three buckets? I mean, it, it varies. I, I, a third, a third, a third would be nice, but you just got to work with, with what you got, right? I mean, folks have uh, different earning situations and, and, um, you know, some folks have Roth contribution allowances in their 401ks. So it's a lot easier for that person to be flexible if your 401k plan allows you to make Roth uh, contributions. But if you don't have that, you're just maxing out pre-tax. There's nothing you can do, right? I mean, like while tax rates are low right now, I'd like to see myself convert or have more money in Roth. Because mm -hmm. also like when, when I kick the bucket, like I want my kids to have it in Roth, versus inheriting an IRA where the government now requires them to withdraw it all within 10 years. So it's like a topic for a future conversation, yeah. planning for inheritances and kicking the bucket. That'll be a happy episode. You're not doing that anytime yeah. soon, are you? God, I hope not. Okay. The death episode. <laughs> That'll be fun. All right. This has been awesome, guys. Any other broad thoughts before we let people know where they could find you? No, just, you know, keep, keep on investing um, stay the course. Don't panic. If you have a concentrated position, watch it closely. May maybe seek advice to kind of help walk you or guide you through the process of hopefully protecting, you know, that position or helping you diversify out of it in a tax efficient manner. You know, if you don't have a plan in place, create one. Like yep. make a plan and stick to like it. Like as as um as Travis had mentioned, create that IPS, that investment policy statement. Sign it. Keep it at your monitor wherever you do your trading, so that you, so that it keeps, it keeps your behavior in check, and you can like look. There's this great book called the One Page, not One Page Financial, like uh, index something about like writing your yeah, yeah, IPS yeah. on an index card. Like you know, something short and simple that keeps you on on track. Perfect, Doug. You have yours tattooed on a part of your body that's inappropriate to show the the viewers. Correct. 
but, but you can investment see investment policy statement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. If you ever have an issue, that's you can, yeah. It's you near what I call the undercarriage. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Elizabeth can uh. see it too. And... <laughs> All right. Where can people find you guys? Downshiftfinancial.com. Fantastic. And you guys were in an, another episode, so we'll link up to that if people want to check it out. Thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks for you. having us. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the Balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in, in person. So the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using. And that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week. All right, Travis, um, have you gone on any trips recently? Not really. We have a couple planned, though. We're going to go camping at Turquoise Lake this year. Oh, nice. It, so. it, is that in, uh, that's in Canada? or No, that's Turquoise here in Colorado somewhere. Oh, um, my wife oh. booked it. I don't know where it is. <laughs> it's near Led Leadville, right? Turquoise Lake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's awesome. That's where the hoodies come from that I wear. The uh, oh, okay. Melanzana. Uh, we like Leadville a lot. Okay. So I, I'm pretty sure that's it. I don't know why I thought Canada. There's a Lake Louise, which is obviously not turquoise, <laughs> but uh, the color of Lake Louise is it's turquoise. turquoise. Yeah, Lake, Lake Louise know. Banff. Yeah, yeah, it's, oh. it's out that way. We looked at maybe going there for our honeymoon, but decided somewhere else. That place is magical. Yeah, you been? Yeah, cool, awesome. All right, Carl, you walked over here. Any interesting stories? Uh, yeah, I walked over here. I live 3.1 miles away from Doug, and I've got a little bit of a gut from unhealthy eating habits. So, yeah, not many. I, I do enjoy the walk, and you walk fast. Your heart rate gets right in that fat loss mode, and you can catch up on your podcast. Uh, funny enough, they were talking about inflation and the spread between inflation and uh, – what is it? The 10-year bond? I don't know. You all – Oh, I thought you meant inflation – around the middle. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is that kind of inflation too. Uh, yeah. So they're talking about the spread between what interest rates are and inflation. They said it's like the biggest it's been in 50 years. Which podcast? Like Animal Spirits. I was just listening to that on the drive over. Yeah. Okay, cool. So maybe we can talk a, a little bit uh -oh. about that. <laughs> if you don't or want not. to. If you, okay. We, we will not bring that up. But yeah, it's fun walking. I, I like it a lot. I get to catch up on things and take a look around. I got to find a different way because it was high traffic and you just hear these you're inhaling exhaust and i'm probably mm. actually shortening my life by trying to get healthier from bringing from breathing <laughs> diesel fumes yeah, another reason yeah. to go ev yeah 
you got to figure out how to just stay on the greenway. There's a couple spots, but yeah, you will have to cross like the highway or a kind of a major road. Okay. Regardless. So I, I might get run over, but that's a risk I'm willing to take. <laughs> that's perfect. All right. And everybody could hear, uh, well, yeah. 